Mark chapter 2, this is exciting because we've been studying the gospel of Mark now for about seven weeks, and we're finally in Mark chapter 2. Woohoo! We excited? Okay, all right. So Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after these some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this before. Well, we're, re- we're rediscovering Jesus together in this series uh, as we encounter Jesus again yet this morning in his public ministry. He's back again in his hometown of Capernaum. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we encounter the word faith. And Jesus uh, uses this word faith in reference to himself. So this morning I want us to see, I want to jump in quickly, we're going to see three things about faith in Christ this morning as he's referencing himself. The first thing is this, if you're taking notes, faith in Christ is our only hope. Faith in Christ, we won't find our only hope. The second thing we'll see this morning is that faith in Christ reveals our greatest need. And then the third thing we'll see is faith in Christ discloses a deeper healing that's needed. So faith in Christ is our only hope. Faith in Christ reveals our greatest need. And faith in Christ discloses a deeper healing that's needed. So faith in Christ is our only hope. So Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's likely in Simon uh, Peter's house where he had healed earlier on. We saw that in chapter 1. Jesus had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He's back in Simon Peter's house and he's preaching. And Mark again tells us And we'll see this as a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, especially early on, that the crowds are following Jesus. Mark makes it a point to to show us that the crowd is so big around, inside and around uh, Simon Peter's house where Mark is preaching that there are hundreds, if not perhaps thousands of people around this house that the, the guys who bring this paralytic to Jesus have to cut a hole through the roof in order to encounter and be with Jesus. You know, if you live in a small house, my grandmother grew up in a small house, and my dad grew up in a, a small house. It, to me, I can picture that, just a thousand, a couple thousand people around her little house. I don't know if you can picture that in your head, but Mark doesn't want you to, to lose that picture of just thousands of people crowded around this small little house hearing the teaching of Jesus. Mark's very good at planning or painting these dramatic scenes to, to help us see that what Jesus is preaching, really his message he wants to make his message pop, if you will. So that's why Jesus, uh, Mark sets up this scene like this. So Jesus is preaching, and Mark tells us that this group of men bring this paralytic to Jesus on this stretcher, and they're trying to push through the crowd, right, to get to Jesus. 
So when they couldn't break through the crowd, what do they do? What naturally any person would do, they would dig a hole through the roof. Would you do that? <laughs> no. It's just, you know, it's still, this story just still blows my mind. So they couldn't break through the crowd. They get up onto the flat roof. Houses back then were, were flat roofed houses. Uh, there were often stone steps or wood ladders used to get up on top. They were almost like a separate room of the house where they would put out their laundry, they would use it for storage, or they would just get out on this patio or portico outside this flat roof in order just to be outside. And these guys realize that they cannot get their friend. They're, they're trying to get through, and that would be hard in and of itself, right? Imagine you carrying a stretcher or a litter with a guy. You know, I don't know how much he weighs, but trying to weave through a crowd of thousands of people would be incredibly difficult. So they realize that the only way that they're going to get their buddy to Jesus is by lowering him through the roof. Now that's radical, isn't it? And the temptation for us, you know, maybe you've grown up hearing this story in, in Sunday school, you've heard it in church. Don't let this story lose its luster. Just because you've heard it a million times, don't check out, don't let this story lose its luster because as I even read this, it's still just a radical thing for these guys to do, isn't it? You know, I still laugh at this story that the, these guys have the gumption. Do we use that word anymore, gumption? We have the gumption. They're, these guys have the gumption to do what they did in order to get their friend to Jesus. Okay, so they're on this flat roof. They're beginning to dig through. And, and if you know anything about biblical history in these houses back then, it wasn't your typical thatch roof where you think it's just some grass and some reeds that you can pretty easily dig through. No, this was a pretty substantial roof. These roofs were built flat with beams going across these roofs, probably large logs, cedar logs going across the roof. And I'm not an engineer, and I know we have engineers here, so if I'm wrong after the sermon, you tell me. But they have the beams going wrong to hold the load. There's my word, engineers, load. Got it? Okay. To hold the load right on top. Did I do well? Okay. So they have these cedar beams going across. And then within these cedar beams, they have almost like a waffle pattern, these smaller branches woven through the beams. And then on top of the smaller branches, they have other reeds and, and grasses woven through that in order to make this supporting structure that then on top of that goes one to two feet of soil, of dirt. So you can imagine the weight of this material was, was heavy. And then the sun beating down on it and the rain, it turns this into to really a very strong structure. So it's not like they're just digging through a little bit of grass. No, they very well were, were working and very well could have had improvised tools, makeshift tools that they might have found on the roof with significant effort trying to dig through this roof in order to get to Jesus. And imagine Jesus preaching. How did they find him? I don't know. But somewhere, I guess they guessed he was somewhere in the middle. And he's preaching and they're digging through and you just see this stuff falling on top of Jesus. It's just, I don't know, it's just a radical picture. You know, you don't make this stuff up. You just can't make this stuff up. So Jesus is preaching. This stuff's falling on him. Dirt's falling all over everybody. And you see the sun peering through and the guy's looking through the hole. There he is. You know, it's just... What a picture. And they, they uh, begin to lower this guy down. I just, I have to think about these guys as they're digging in order to get access to Jesus. You wonder if they were thinking, man, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And what about the poor paralytic guy? Guys, I didn't mean for you to go this far to get me to Jesus. And he couldn't do anything about it, right? It's not like he's gonna get up and try to stop him. He couldn't do anything. But you imagine when the guys were digging thinking, almost having second thoughts, like, man, should we be doing this? I don't know if y'all were little. Maybe you remember this when you were a kid. Did you have cousins that you used to get in trouble with? Did you ever have cousins like that? I see you smiling. You did, didn't you? Or maybe you had siblings, who, older siblings or a neighbor that you just, you did things that were a little bit naughty, you know, and, and you knew that your mom and dad would just kill you if they found out that you did, right? I see some of y'all laughing, men, men in particular. I, saw, I see you laughing. 
Well, you, you do these things and you're wondering, man, if, if my parents find out I am a goner, and I, I, that, okay, that same feeling that I see on your, uh, smiling on your face is probably how I would identify with these guys. God, man, I'm not sure that we should be doing this. It's a little bit exciting, but I'm not sure that we should be doing this. So Mark doesn't tell us if this was their friend's idea, if this was the idea of the guy on the stretcher. Of course, he couldn't do anything about that, but I imagine the guy on the stretcher saying, guys, come on and stop. We're going to get in huge trouble here. And actually, they really could have gotten in, likely maybe did get in big trouble because the Pharisees and the scribes were the religious figures of the town of the day. The Pharisees and the scribes had tremendous power over that community. Uh, They really were the authorities of the day. And so, put it in modern day context, it would be like you and a crew of your friends taking jackhammers and pickaxes to the Supreme Courthouse, I guess in, I don't know, is there one in Roanoke? Maybe there's one in Richmond. You go to the Supreme Courthouse in Richmond with jackhammers and you get on their roof and there's a huge court case going on with this honorable judge and they're doing his court case and you're drilling through to get access to the judge. That's the picture here. I mean, you'd be in huge trouble, wouldn't you? Huge trouble. These guys, same kind of deal. They were doing something so radical in order to get their friend to Jesus, putting really themselves on the line in order to get their friend to Jesus. Now, I, there's a side note here that I, need to, that I need to talk about. And it's really not the main point of this passage, but I can't, I can't skip over this. Think about this. The four friends who brought their friend to Jesus through all of the risk that they did in order to gain access to Christ. That's amazing love, isn't it? That's amazing faith. That's amazing dedication to do something so radical and so risky for their friends. That's the kind of friends we need in our lives, isn't it? I need friends like this because, and I'm speaking not just to men, but I think men in particular, men, we do this. We tend to isolate ourselves, don't we? Men tend to isolate themselves. Wives, you know this. When your husband comes home and he kind of tunes out and he's not really engaging with you, and maybe you've seen this just in your, your other friend's life as, as you're a guy. We, and people do this too. We tend to isolate ourselves. Adam and Eve did this. When they sin, what did they do? They go and they hid from the Lord, didn't they? Hiding is just another term, fancy term for isolating. They were isolating away from the Lord. And we often as people, even as believers, we isolate from one another, don't we? And I need friends like this in my life because I often isolate. I try to, I withdraw and I want to kind of come back in on my shell, my selfishness, my self-absorption. And having that kind of friendship, y'all, is a blessing. You know, sometimes I know spiritual friendships turn into almost spiritual competition. I know this in uh, high school. Gosh, you know, I was such an obnoxious, radical Christian in high school. I really was. Gosh. You know, you look back on it and go, ugh, I really said those things? I really acted like that? I mean, my friends and I, we used to have quiet time competitions. We did. Well, how many quiet times have you had? Well, I've had seven this week. How about you? Well, I only had five. You know, and I mean, it's just like you get, your, you get your spiritual well-being from how many quiet times you have. That's not the kind of relationship I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about spiritual competition. I need friends in my life who love me enough to point out the sin in my life. I need friends who love me enough to say, Stephen, you're not loving Presley Ann well. And I need friends who say, you're not loving, you know, you're more married and more in love with your job and your performance than you are with your children. You know, I need friends who are saying that, uh, you know, Stephen, you are isolating, you're withdrawing, what's going on? And, and they, they constantly check me. And it's not about competition, it's about love, it's about transformation. You know, I need friends who won't back down. I need friends with teeth, if you will. I had a friend say that. I need friends with teeth. 
I don't need friends with, who are going to gum me to death. I need friends who are going to chew me up for the sake of the gospel. I do. Because gospel community takes huge risks to take others to Jesus. Write this down. Gospel community takes huge risks to take your friends to Jesus. That's the kind of friends this guy had. And I know this isn't the main point, but this is so key. Because the paralytic's friends, and the paralytic's friends, or the paralytic himself, didn't tell us, you know, what brought him to this point. But, but th- apparently, and we see this clearly, that Jesus was this guy's last resort. That they would do something so desperate to get their friend to Jesus shows us that Jesus was this guy's last resort. The radical action of them tearing apart this difficult roof in order to get them to Jesus, they were in desperation. This guy was in desperation. And desperation is yet another word that we don't like to use, do we? I mean, it, it doesn't sound like a very spiritual, well, maybe it can sound like a spiritual word, but we don't like to use the word desperation. We don't like to be desperate people, but we read the psalm this morning. You see that through the psalms about the desperation. And desperation is not a bad word at all. It's actually a great word. In fact, desperation is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Desperation is the absolute opposite of self-dependence. And self-sufficiency and self-dependence really is just a good definition of sin. Because self-dependence, self-focus, self-infatuation is about living life on your own terms. It means that if you're self-dependent, if you're not desperate for the Lord, but you're just really desperate for yourself, turned in on yourself, it means that you... You are living in this world that God has gifted you with. He's given it to you. He's given you your life to enjoy. And yet, you live in this creation that He's given you as a gift. You live in this world without any reference to Him. That your life is really oriented around yourself. And that's the complete opposite of where this guy and his friends were. You see, this scene here looks like desperation. Faith here feels like death. What do I mean by that? Here's this paralytic. I, we don't know, and I, I am reading this into this, but I think it's there. That this guy, I, I don't know if he wanted to go, for his friends to go that far in order to get him to Jesus. Take me to Jesus. See if you can work your way through the crowds. Okay, guys, I know we, we can't get through. It's okay. No, we're going we're gonna to get you to Jesus. And man, we're going to pull out all the stops and do something more radical than you can ever imagine, bud, to get you to Jesus. And, and they did. See, that that feels like death to this paralytic. That feels like death. No, that's embarrassing. No way, I don't want to get in trouble. Faith feels like death sometimes, doesn't it? We have to go to Jesus with our weakness. And this guy, he didn't have a choice. He was showing everybody that he was weak. We don't like that, do we? Desperation shows our weakness. It's good, guys. It's not a bad thing. It's good. A guy named Jack Miller said, cheer up, you're worse off than you can ever imagine. Isn't that true? But the good news is you're far more loved than you could ever dare dream or hope. So this sets the scene for what Jesus tells the paralytic. Instead of saying, son, rise up and be healed, Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven. And that's a little bit odd, isn't it? Mark, Mark wants us to take the bait here. He really does. That's why he sets the scene up. He wants us to take the bait because the paralytic and his friends were expecting a healing and not for his sins to be healed. He's saying, Jesus, I am not asking for the absolution of my sins. I'm asking to be able to walk again. Here's the obvious problem, Jesus. He's on a mat. We lured him to you. Why are you not healing him of his par- par- uh, being paralyzed? Our friend can't walk. Let's try this again, Jesus. So Mark 
puts the bait out there and he wants us to take it. Mark's setting the scene to show us that Jesus knows something that this paralyzed guy doesn't know, that his friends don't know, that the crowds don't know, that the scribes and the Pharisees don't know because the paralytic had a much bigger problem than his physical condition, doesn't he? Matthew, in his parallel account of this, addressed the paralytic with these words, take heart, my son. Mark just says, my son, right? Your sins are forgiven. Matthew adds the, the phrase, take heart, my son. And that phrase, take heart, my son, it's like this compound phrase in the original language in the Greek. The word son comes from the word technon in the Greek. And it literally means little child, little one. My child, my son, my, my baby, babies. I call my children babies. I know they don't like it when they're older. I still call them babies. That's the language that Jesus is using, your babies. Son, my little child, take heart. I understand your problems. I see your suffering, but listen, I want to address a deeper problem with you first. Because there is a main problem in your life that is not para being paralyzed. You see, there, Jesus is saying that it's never a person's suffering that's the main problem. That's what Mark wants us to see. Jesus is saying that it's not your suffering that's your main problem in life. And I'm not denigrating or saying suffering is not hard. It is. The main problem in your life is not that life is hard. Your main problem is that you are a desperate sinner. And that leads us to our next point, that faith in Christ does reveal our greatest need, doesn't it? You know, Jesus is confronting this paralytic with his main greatest problem. My son, by coming to me and asking for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough says you have to you're underestimating the depths of your longing because the true longing longing of your heart is to think that you would like to walk again but Jesus is trying to help him see that there is a deeper longing still and naturally if you're paralyzed you would want to walk again right I had a friend named Rory who was paralyzed I was a young life leader he was coming to young life he was uh, tragically paralyzed in a car accident Rory never could walk again and I remember just seeing and I didn't know Rory real well but actually, he's at Presley's father's church, his family. But, but we saw Rory wrestle, wrestle with his paralysis, never being able to walk again. And I'm sure to this day, Rory still wrestles with his paralysis. And I know it would be the heart of his heart that he would be able to be healed and walk again. So surely this guy was resting his hope on this possibility of walking again. I mean, look at the desperation of the events to just get him to Jesus. And I say this because I see this in my own life, this struggle. And I'm not paralyzed. I can walk. And I'm thankful for that. But I think what this guy who's paralyzed struggles with is common to what we all struggle with. And that's the struggle of discontentment. We struggle with being content, don't we? I think the roots of discontentment go very deep in us, don't they? Think about it this way. You know, do you remember when you were a child and it was Christmas? And you got toys, right? Kids, y'all probably a little more freshly remember this. And I don't remember a ton about my childhood, but isn't it sad that I remember what toys I got? <laughs> How shallow is that? It's true. I remember what toys I got as a kid, and I remember getting up early on Christmas morning at like 4.30 in the morning and sneaking out and carefully unwrapping some presents and then, you know, trying to wrap them back. Kids, don't put your ears in your fingers. Don't do this. I remember doing this. And I remember that I was so excited to get these presents. And by lunchtime, I had moved on. Isn't that crazy? And I see that now in my life at 43. Those same patterns of discontentment are still in my life. 
at 43 years old. I see it in my own kids. And I see it with people who I work with in midlife crisis all the time. That struggle with discontentment. The roots of discontentment run deep in us, don't they? And I think this paralyzed man, he wasn't immune from it either. Two months, six years, year out, he's been healed. He is in this euphoria of being able to walk again. And how many months is it going to take before that euphoria wears off and the struggle and the roots of discontentment begin to bear their head once again? Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, he shares this article that I, I just have to read this to you. This is so good. It just nails this struggle we have with discontentment. He illustrates this so well. He talks about this article that was written by a, a lady named Cynthia Heimel who wrote in the, this New York Journal about uh, entertainment called Village Voice. And here's what she says. Cynthia had grown up in New York City, had tons of friends who were actors and actresses, and she noticed this trend in her friends who were actors and actresses that those who, who made it big in show business, often when they became famous, they totally changed. Their personalities changed. And she said when struggling, they would say, if, as a struggling actor or actor, actress, if I could only make it big time in show business, if I only had this or that in show business, then I would be happy. Well, we know what that leads to, right? But here's what she says, particularly in this article. She says, my friends were like so many other people. They were stressed, driven, easily upset. But when, they, but when they actually got the fame that they had been longing for, Heimel said, they became insufferable. They were unstable, angry, and manic. Not just arrogant, as you might expect. Worse than that, they were now unhappier than they ever used to be. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful, she says. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after fame arrived, each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And nothing changed, she says. They were still them. And the disillusionment turned them into howling and insufferable people. And she goes on to say that she was sorry for her friends, sorry for the ones who had made it big time, she says, that they had the thing that they thought would make everything okay, and then it didn't. And then she says this, and get what she says here. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Huh. When God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, guess what? He gives you your deepest wish wish you see here's what Jesus was trying to say to this paralyzed guy and this is what Jesus is saying to you this morning I am not going to play a rotten joke on you I'm not just going to heal your body and let you think that you have gotten your deepest wish that's what he's saying I refuse to play a rotten joke on you I'm not going to heal you and then make you think that you've gotten your deepest wish Beloved, do you see this? Beloved, do you see that God's word tells us that our deepest problem is not our sufferings, but our deepest problem is that every one of us is building an identity and a security on something else beside Jesus. You know, how many times have you thought that what she just said in that article? If I just had this, if my deepest wish was just fulfilled, then everything would be okay. I heard Mark Driscoll speak years ago, and Driscoll said this mantra throughout his sermon and it, it stuck with me. 
he says that we take good things, we make good things into God things, and then they become bad things. A good thing, when it becomes a God thing, becomes a bad thing. It's easy to remember, isn't it? A good thing, when it becomes a God thing, becomes a bad thing. I think what he's saying is this, that when we make the objects of our wishes, they become our functional savior. Even though they could be good things, they become God things, then they become bad things, and then they become the deepest idols of our hearts. You see, the problem is, is that we sin to helps and does distort our deepest wishes by making our deepest wishes and turning those wishes into a savior. And then when we find, try to find contentment and you finally ha- have it, what happens to those good things that have become God things? Well, they turn on you, don't they? Jesus says, Beloved, if you have me, if you have me, if I will actually fulfill you, Jesus says. And if you fail me, I forgive you because I'm the only Savior that can do that. You know, I've referred to C.S. Lewis a ton, haven't I? I can't help it, though. When you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, just, there's not much better out there. If you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, let me encourage you to do that. If you have kids, man, it's a great read. You can listen to it on book on tape. Man, it makes me cry every time I listen to it. It's so good. But if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, do you remember the story in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader about the story of the boy Eustace? Do you remember this story? Remember Eustace? He was just an insufferable kid. He's awful. He's mean as a snake. I mean, nobody liked Eustace. He didn't really have any friends. He was just selfish, turned in on himself, curved in on himself. Everybody hated him. He hated everybody else. So he's on this magical ship called the Dawn Treader, and he ends up on this island, right? And he discovers this treasure on this island as he's exploring, and he just is blown away by the amount of treasure that's here. Diamonds and rubies and gold, just tons and tons and tons of treasure. And Eustace declares himself rich. You know, he plants his flag, if you will, in the treasure and said, it's mine, and I'm rich. And then he has this even more sinister thought of, well, listen, not only am I rich, but now I can use my rubies and my diamonds and my gold to pay off my friends. Those who've laughed at me, those who've made fun of me, I'll buy their respect, and then they'll see how powerful I am. I'll show them Eustace thinks. And he doesn't realize that the treasure that he's discovered on this island is really the hoard of a dragon. This dragon has gone to and fro in the land and he's brought back all of these riches and it's really the dragon's treasures, not, not Eustace's treasure. But Eustace falls asleep with the dragon gone and he falls asleep on top of the treasure and he begins to think greedy, Lewis says, greedy dragonish thoughts as he's falling asleep. Well, you know, the story, when Eustace wakes up, he looks down, and guess what? He's turned into a dragon because of his greedy, dragonish thoughts. And he realizes that there's no way for him to get back to the ship. There's no way even for him to get off this island, and Eustace falls into despair. And then one day, the great lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure in Lewis's story, he shows up, and he wants to heal Eustace of his dragon dragonness. And so he takes Eustace to this pool of water and he really wants to baptize. It's a picture of baptism in a way. And he takes Eustace to this beautiful pool of water that's crystal clear and he asks Eustace to undress and then jump in. And then Eustace realizes when he's, Aslan's asking him to undress that he's mean that he needs to take off his dragon skin. And so Eustace begins to gnaw and to rip away at his dragon skin and, and he's surprised that as he's doing this and gnawing it off that it doesn't hurt at all. And so he begins to rip off this layer of dragon skin and he discards it to the side and to his dismay, there's yet another layer underneath. And so he begins to gnaw and rip off that layer and then 
you know the story, it, it's layer after layer, and he realizes that he cannot shed all of these layers of dragon skin. As soon as he does it, another one grows back. It's useless. Finally, Aslan tells him this. I love this line. You're going to have to let me go deeper, Eustace. You're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's how Eustace recalls the story to Edmund later on. Let me read it to you. If I can get through this without crying. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress, undress you, Eustace. And I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let Aslan do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling that skin off, it hurt hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff being peeled off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it's such fun to see it coming off anyway. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the three other times, only that didn't hurt when I did it. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had ever been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I had been turned into a boy again. That's a precious story, isn't it? It's hard not to weep over that story. And I've heard that in the book on tape, and I have wept. And that's the picture of the paralyzed guy and Jesus if we thought, if, we, if, if I could just get enough, enough help, Jesus, Jesus, if you could just get me over the hump in life, hump over myself and hump over my sinfulness, Jesus, if you could just help me over the hump, then I can manage from here, Jesus. I've got my own resources. I can take care of it. But what we learn here is that Jesus is saying, no, you can't do it yourself. You can't peel off these layers of sinfulness and selfishness. You can't. I've got to go far deeper still with you. And he will use his claws to go all the way to your heart and do a miracle, folks. Transforming you is the main thing that he wants. You see, there's nothing wrong with our desires. Desires aren't bad. Uh, Wishes aren't bad. And we often, often want our deepest desires and wishes to satisfy us. But see, that's our biggest problem. The uh, desires and wishes we have, those good things, they become God things, don't they? And this leads us to our third point this morning, that faith in Christ discloses a deeper healing that's needed. Notice Mark makes this clear distinction here, right, between the faith of this paralyzed guy and his friends and the more sinister characters. And this is the first time Mark introduces more of a sinister theme in his story, in his Gospel of Mark, these sinister characters of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Mark uses this phrase, notice it says the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting there And that's not just to talk about where they were sitting or what they were doing. It's really a slight Mark is using in that text to slight the Pharisees saying that they are just sitting there. While this guy is suffering, what are they doing? They're just sitting there. And it's really the change of plot in his narrative of Jesus. It's where we begin to see the opposition of Jesus all the way to his death. 
So let's read uh, six through. Let's read six through nine. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. Mark shows us questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? And then he goes on and gives them this riddle. Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. walk." So Mark tells us that Jesus can read the motive of their hearts. He knows the very depths of our hearts and our greatest need, doesn't he? And again, in Matthew's parallel story, it's interesting, Matthew even paints the picture darker. Matthew says that Jesus not only says, uh, why do you question, question, Matthew tells us that why do you think evil in your hearts? That's what he says, Jesus says to the Pharisees. Why do you think evil in your hearts? So Jesus tells us that the paralytic, his sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees are shocked and angry. Why? Because they say and they rightly proclaim that God is the only one who can forgive sins alone. And their diagnosis was spot on. God is the only one who can forgive sins. And then Jesus gives them this riddle. And I love how Jesus does that. He always counters his opponents with a riddle or a question, doesn't he? And it always stumps them. And this question's still been stumping biblical scholars to this day. He says, what is easier to say to this son of mine? Your sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. You see, the crux of this riddle, the crux of this riddle that he gives us here is that anybody can say your sins are forgiven, right? I could say that today. Tim, your sins are forgiven. I can say it, right? Any of us can say that to each other right now. Your sins are forgiven. But none of us can heal, can we? We don't have that ability. So it was easy for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, but it was very difficult to prove, wasn't it? Jesus can't just prove that your sins are forgiven by just saying it right there, could he? So here's what he's doing. Jesus is saying, I indeed want to show you my authority to forgive sins by telling this paralytic to get up, take up your mat, and walk. And sure enough, what happens? The guy's healed, he gets up, and he walks. So Jesus is saying, the easy thing here for me is to say your sins are forgiven. And then he proves his authority and his power to forgive sins by doing the impossible, by healing this guy completely of his paralysis. He's saying, look, I am not just a miracle worker. I am a savior. Any miracle worker can perform miracles, he's basically saying. Any miracle, can say, miracle worker can say, take up your mat and walk away, but the savior of the world is the only one who can say your sins are forgiven. And what did the Pharisees say or scribes say? Only God can forgive sins. So by Jesus forgiving this guy of his sins and healing him of his paralysis, Jesus is saying, I am God. You see, he is publicly declaring to the religious authorities who already hate him, He is publicly saying, I am God. And I am the only one who can forgive sins. But there's something even deeper here that I want us to see. Because just as Mark has introduced this sinister element to his story, the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to see this sinister element growing stronger and stronger as we get to the cross. Because ultimately, Mark wants to take us to the cross. But as early as chapter 2, it's the beginning of the story. As early as chapter 2, the, the shadow of the cross begins to fall across the path of Jesus. Here's why. Jesus knew the evil in the hearts of these religious leaders, didn't he? He knew what they were thinking. He, you know, Jesus, if he would have just healed this guy, right, and sent him on his way and not said anything about forgiveness of sins, 
Would the relig- religious scribes and Pharisees have been angry with him? Or likely not, probably. They would have seen this guy, Jesus, as an amazing healer, a miracle worker, but they wouldn't have been as angry. So Jesus knows this. And not only does he heal the guy, but then he pronounces forgiveness on his sins. And when he did that, the anger level rose in these scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus knew that they would want to kill him. You see, he's not only letting on that he could do miracles, but by forgiving this guy of his sin, Jesus was claiming to be God and Savior of the world. And the fact that he healed him and forgave his sins, get this, folks, Jesus took an irreversible step on the path towards the cross. He couldn't change it, could he? And by taking that step, hear this, Jesus has put a down payment on your sins. By taking that step, Christ has put a down payment on our sins. On our forgiveness, I'm sorry. He has put a down payment on our forgiveness. Beloved, Jesus has infinite power to give you all that you wish, doesn't he? He has infinite power to give you the the deepest desires and wishes of your heart. But he, like Aslan, knows that that is not deep enough. He has to go far deeper still. Folks, y'all are a big deal to Jesus. I, I, I think sometimes we don't like to believe that you are a big deal to the God of the universe. But you are. You know that your soul matters to him? Your soul matters to him infinitely, folks. You're a big deal to him. And he will lovingly and he will carefully use his claws to pierce our thick hide of self-centeredness and remove the sin that so easily enslaves us and distorts even our desires themselves because Jesus is utterly committed to stepping towards the cross to die for us. And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes, sometimes Jesus will grant what we think is our deepest wish in life, doesn't he? And when he does that, and he grants wish after wish until we get to a place where we realize we're desperate. And we have no other place to turn but Christ. So let me just leave you with a couple of quick questions. First is this. What is it that you really want? You ever ask yourself that question? What is it that you really want? And y'all, that's not a bad question. Don't be afraid to ask that question. You know, it's a great exercise to do with your spouse if you're you're daring enough. Take some time, get the kids down for a nap, (laughs) put on a movie, and sit down with your spouse and say, honey, what is it that I really want in life? It's a good question to ask. Don't be afraid of that question. It's an even greater question to ask God himself. That's a great prayer. God, what do I really want? What do I really need, Lord? Is it recognition that I need, Lord? Is it respect? Is it a good marriage? Lord, I really want to have a good marriage. I really want my spouse to pay attention to me. I'm tired of my spouse isolating and shutting me out. Or, Lord, is it, is it good kids? I want good kids who behave well. I, or maybe it's as simple as I just want another iPad. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. But are you really getting before the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it that I really want? He loves to take you far deeper still than what you really think you want. Here's another question. Is discontentment a real struggle in your life? has been in mine. It continues to be a struggle. And I feel like in some ways that's a thorn in my flesh that the the Lord uses to continue to show me His sufficiency and and my desperation and need of Him. 
you know, often that we struggle so much with discontentment that it begins to tint our daily life, doesn't it? And it begins to struggle. It, it really almost hampers us in really enjoying life. Is discontentment a real struggle in your life? And then the last thing, what about suffering? We all suffer, and some of us, I know you are going through tremendous trials, tremendous suffering, and I am not diminishing your wish to be freed from that suffering. And I don't know if the Lord is going to free you from that, but I do know this. He cares infinitely about your soul, more than delivering you from what you want to be delivered from. He cares infinitely for your heart, and He will do everything He can to peel away those layers and come after your heart. Because he doesn't want to just deliver you from hurt and pain. He wants to deliver you from yourself and deliver you to him because he loves you more than you ever imagine. Let me pray for us. God, this is a lot to take in. And Lord, I, I, there's so much more here. And God, I pray that um, I pray that you are are and have and will continue to reach your claws of grace. I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but I think it's a good picture. That you would continue to rip away the self-centeredness, the pride and the discontentment and the arrogance. Uh, Lord, and the fear. And Lord, that you would teach us how to lament. There's nothing wrong with lamenting. There's nothing wrong with crying out and crying out from a place of desperation is the really the happiest and the holiest place to be. When you bring us to a place again and again, Lord, where we can't do it on our own, that we finally say that, Lord, I'm done, I've had enough, I can't do this, and Lord, getting me over the hump doesn't work. Lord Jesus, help us. Bring us to a place of desperation and dependence on you. Oh, Lord, help us. We are your beloved. Thank you that you call us to take heart, not in and of ourselves, but to take heart in you. And that, Lord, you would help us to be a gospel community who helps to take each other to take heart in Jesus. To not give uh, false and, and really small advice, but instead that we would be ones to sit with each other and weep, cry, and suffer together, and cling to Jesus together. Help us to be that kind of community who would do desperate things to take each other to Jesus. And we pray these things Lord, in your name. Amen. Please stand, let's sing. All hail the power of Jesus' name. <laughs>